Welcome to the Why Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett, Portfolio Manager at Waverton. Now, we spent a lot of time on this podcast unraveling value propositions of fund managers, founders and authors. We've unpicked the power of technology-enabled innovation, the importance of journalism and chewed over what it means to be a sustainable investor. However, in this episode, we're changing tack and looking way back into the distant past. To do so, my guest this week is Dr. Mary Wellesley. Mary is a writer, historian and medieval manuscript scholar who teaches courses on medieval language and literature as part of the British Library's adult learning program. Her book, Hidden Hands, The Lives of Manuscripts and Their Makers, was published last year and was chosen as one of the history books of the year by both The Times and the BBC History magazine. In this episode, we discuss how and why she was attracted to this really quite niche field, how we attribute value to manuscripts through the ages, the history of the study, the story she's uncovered, and what the future holds for her subject. Now, I loved her book. It's a fascinating read. So it gives me great pleasure to welcome Dr. Mary Wellesley. This is the Why Invest podcast. Dr. Mary Wellesley, welcome to the podcast. Mary, how did you start your career? Well, I started by studying English literature at university, and then I did a master's and then a PhD, specializing at each turn in an ever more tiny field. And then I worked for a bit in the Department of Ancient Medieval and Early Modern Manuscripts at the British Library. And then my contract came to an end and I wrote this book. And so what drew you to the world of medieval manuscripts in the first place? Well, I think I can probably distill my fascination with manuscripts down into a single idea, which is that a manuscript is an encounter. You know, when you're sitting in the silence of a special collections reading room and turning the pages of a medieval manuscript, what you're having are these tangible, smellable, visual encounters with the past. But more importantly, you're having encounters with the people that made and subsequently owned and read and annotated the object in front of you. And that's the kind of amazing thing about manuscripts. You know, they were made by a huge number of people from the, you know, people who processed the animal skin to make the parchment on which they were written to the scribes, often whole teams of scribes, the artists, binders. And then of course, at more of a remove, we have authors, we have patrons. So this kind of amazing host of people involved in the production of a manuscript. And then subsequently, lots of people who owned and often left, you know, traces of their ownership in these pages. So you're just dealing with these kind of layer upon layer of human stories. And that is a thing that is endlessly fascinating to me. And I suppose as a textual scholar, you know, if I'm getting down into the real sort of granular detail of of the kind of thing that I wrote my PhD about and what my research is really focused on is just the simple fact that every manuscript is unique and every copy of a text is different and will reflect the whims and biases, you know, the naked commercial interests or devotional persuasion of the scribes who created it. And that's very, very interesting to me. And we're going to get on to your your book, Hidden Hands, The Lives of Manuscripts and Their Makers. But before we do, I want to talk about the, the sort of value that people attribute to manuscripts and how does one value a manuscript? Well, I think that's a, a really interesting question, thinking about value in relation to manuscripts, because 
If you were to take a very basic calculation that is about, say, intrinsic value, and you just say, well, from an insurance perspective, if we were to recreate this object exactly as it was, should it be destroyed, how many man hours would it take to recreate it? And on that very simple calculation, the worth of manuscripts is almost inestimable to us because so many people, as I said, were involved in the production of manuscripts, but also it took so many man hours. You know, for example, for a scribe to copy a copy of the Bible could take three years, perhaps. So there are very few objects that we create today in our industrialized society that take as much care and love and labor. So on that pure basic calculation, the intrinsic value is incredibly high. Then, of course, there is this other matter of the kind of cultural value. And of course, manuscripts command a very high price in the sale room because of their age and their cultural importance. But that is, of course, susceptible to market forces. And that's a whole sort of different story, which I think is equally interesting. And can you give me an example of, you know, perhaps through history, how different manuscripts, and perhaps you can use an example of a manuscript that has been valued and then revalued and then revalued again and revalued again, and perhaps the value has appreciated. And I think it's quite interesting your the way you sort of approach value in terms of sort of man hours and labor, because I suppose in, in the investment world, we think about cash flow generation and, and future value. <laughs> and it's almost like the complete reverse. Yeah. I am definitely not qualified as an economist or indeed qualified to give investment advice. So perhaps my notion of values is quite radically different from yours. So I did some work on a manuscript a few years ago, and I looked at the prices it had realized in the sale room between the middle of the 19th century and the kind of early 20th century. And what's very interesting is that you can plot on the graph above inflation increases in the value of the manuscript. It sold 1814, 1844, 1874. But then you just have this massive jump in the early 20th century when it then is sold for around four times the price that it was sold for in the 1870s. And clearly that's related to very specific historical circumstances, but one of the major ones is the fact that it was bought by an American collector. And this period in the early 20th century is a period in which a lot of European private collections are being dispersed and American collectors are coming onto the market and they are very, very interested in the kind of cultural value that accrues, the sort of antiquity, the age that accrues in these objects, and therefore they're prepared to pay large amounts of money. And of course, this is a period in which some of the sort of famous American collections like the Huntington Library and the Morgan Library in New York are put together in this period in the early 20th century. It's like any market, and maybe this is crude terms, but any market where all of a sudden you introduce you know, a bigger American market at the turn of the 20th century who are kind of interested in these manuscripts or cultural identity from Europe you then introduce them into the market, suddenly you've got an awful lot more buyers and sellers and the price goes up. Is that too simplistic? No, I think that's a very fair analysis. And I think the other thing to bear in mind is there is a simple, I mean, this is why manuscripts are now making so much money in the auction, in the sale room, which is that there is a simple supply and demand problem because for the whole length of the 20th century and into the 21st, institutions are very highly motivated and well-funded to buy manuscripts and take them off the market and preserve them for posterity. 
What kind of institutions? Mainly libraries and museums. And so the number of manuscripts that are coming to market diminishes by the year. And so they become ever more prized because they are a limited resource now, increasingly so. Also, what's interesting is there's been a a kind of change in, to go back to our question about value, in what collectors value. So probably in the 19th century, the kinds of manuscripts that would have been really valued would have been beautifully decorated ones, ones with lovely illumination. But now, perhaps driven in part by this kind of shrinking of the available assets that can be purchased, collectors are becoming perhaps a little more discerning and starting to value other aspects of manuscripts. So one interesting example of that is the interest in particular languages and text in particular languages. There was a sale in London in 2014 when two fragments of Old English, which is the form of English that was spoken in England very roughly before the Norman conquest of 1066. So it's a Germanic language. It's uh, very different from modern English. And those two fragments, uh, one was about nine and a half centimeters by two centimeters. So between them, not a very large area of parchment available. And the two of them together sold for nearly £130,000. Then I did a little calculation. A rough price of those bits of parchment was about £6,000 per square centimetre, which is, is kind of fascinating. And this is really driven by incredible rarity. I mean, there are very few manuscripts globally that contain Old English and very, very, very few come to the market ever. I mean, it's probably a once in a generation event. And so that's why they are so valued. But it's it's kind of extraordinary to think that these are what are called binding fragments. So in the Middle Ages, manuscripts were often cut up, old manuscripts were cut up and reused to make the bindings of new manuscripts. So we're not even talking about whole books here. We're just talking about scraps of parchment. Can anyone read Old English? You do have to learn it from scratch. It's not something that you can pick up. Whereas you you would be able to pick up a copy of Geoffrey Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, for example, and you can kind of make out what's going on. Old English is a very, very different language. So it is something you learn from scratch. So you generally only only learn it in an academic setting. So yeah, it's not a very large number of people that can understand. And the utility function isn't great. Right. <laughs> so look, going back to the sort of investment side, can you, as an investor, establish a sort of investment thesis? Can you attribute when you're looking at auctions, and actually going a step back, I did before recording this podcast, I went on the various auction websites, and the numbers are staggering. But I'm wondering, is there a way that you can sort of say, okay, well, I think that today this is going to be worth X, and tomorrow I'm buying this for the future. Is it possible to create an investment thesis when buying manuscripts? Well, I'm definitely not qualified to give investment advice. Don't worry, Um, we've got lots of disclaimers. Well, I suppose if you could say that the kind of constants in the market are likely to be that institutions will go on, well, we hope that institutions will go on being often publicly funded and therefore will have the resources to buy manuscripts of importance. So therefore, we know that there are always going to be buyers out there. We also know that the number of manuscripts that come to market is diminishing over time. So it seems like a pretty good bet in terms of buying an asset that will increase in value. Now, of course, the interesting thing is that although manuscripts do command a very high price in the sale room, it's nothing by comparison with, say, you know, contemporary art that is sold today. 
only a few weeks ago, we've had some really enormous figures changing hands for some kind of 20th century art. So I suppose one question is, are the kinds of private collectors who would be interested in buying manuscripts a dying breed? It's possible they are. Because it's a very kind of cerebral sort of collecting. If you want to buy an Andy Warhol of Marilyn Monroe and put it in your house, you can have people come over for dinner and be really impressed by how much money you have and this extraordinary painting. But it's very unlikely that you're going to impress as many people with a nine centimeter by two centimeter fragment of old English. <laughs> I mean, if I went over someone's house and I saw that, I'd be very impressed. But let's move on. I want to talk about your book, Hidden Hands, Lives of Manuscripts and Their Makers, which I think you published in October last year. I've read it. I loved it. And I think the way I sort of thought about it, and I don't I'm no expert on medieval manuscripts, but what I loved about it, it felt like sort of 3D history in the sense that you, you have the history around the manuscript itself and how it was written. Then you have about five different episodes where it was rediscovered, reimagined, people interpreted it in different ways. And so I think to me, and it kind of goes back to your sort of introductory point on manuscripts and how it's such a sort of vast complex of information. But I wonder, taking a step back, why did you write the book in the first place? And, and, and what does your ideal reader look like? Well, I suppose I wrote the book because I am something of a turbo nerd and I'm obsessed with this stuff and I feel like it is interesting to a wider constituency of people than can currently really access it or understand it. A problem historically has been that manuscripts are generally kind of inaccessible. They're sort of physically inaccessible because they're usually kept in research libraries and reserved only for scholars. And so getting to see them is very, very difficult. And if you see them in a gallery setting, you know, the gallery of a, of a library or a museum, you're only seeing one opening of the manuscript, which is a bit like deciding to look at an old master painting and only look at a kind of small credit card sized area in the bottom left-hand corner. So we haven't really, for the person who is not you know, does not have an academic or scholarly interest in this material, it has been very difficult historically for them to see manuscripts. And of course, they are intellectually inaccessible. I mean, as we've mentioned earlier, they are written in languages like Old English, which is unintelligible unless you learn it from scratch. And they are written in scripts that are very, very difficult to decipher. But the big change in the last 10, 20 years has been digitization. And now suddenly manuscripts are being made available to anyone anywhere in the world. You know, I can sit at home in my pajamas and look at, say, the Beowulf manuscript in a kind of level of resolution that would be impossible in the reading room of the British Library, hopefully in clothing more suitable to scholarly study. And so I felt like it was an exciting time to try and engage a wider audience in the subject matter of manuscripts because they are becoming increasingly accessible. I think that's right. And I think I suppose the story, the sort of stories of their makers is an interesting one and the stories around the manuscripts themselves. And I wonder, I don't want to give the game away about the book itself and I'd encourage our listeners to go and buy a copy, but I think we have to introduce one of my heroes from the, or heroines from the book, I suppose, Emma of Normandy. Who was Emma of Normandy? Yes, Emma of Normandy. Well, she's this kind of tremendously important figure in English history and yet basically no one's really ever heard of her. 
she was the great aunt of William the Conqueror. So it was her relationship to William the Conqueror that legitimized the invasion in 1066 in his eyes. But more importantly than that, she was married first to Athelred the Unready. Wonderful name. But Unready comes from the Old English Unrad, which just means poorly advised. It's not to do with readiness. So anyway, Athelred, the poorly advised, who she was married to and she had children with him. And then he died and there was an invasion from Denmark. And Canute invaded, King Canute invaded. Emma was at this point a widow. He then married Emma of Normandy. Now, it looks like probably something of a brazen political move on his behalf to try and ensure that factions in the Anglo-Saxon court who supported the old regime would lend their support to him and his new wife. She then had children with him. So she then became the mother of several different claimants to the English throne. And it's clear from early in her life that she was a very shrewd political operator. She understood that in the late Anglo-Saxon court, life was lived on a knife edge at all times. And it, this was a time of violence and political maneuvering and you had to really have your wits about you. And we see this from quite early on in her career. She comes to England as probably a teenager. We're not exactly sure how old she is, but it's clearly a bit of a baptism of fire. She likely spoke Norman French and, you know, she may have been educated in some other languages, but it's very unlikely that she actually spoke Old English as it was. And she arrived at court and was instantly given a new name, which was in fact the name of Ethelred's previous wife. <laughs> anyway, the reason I write about her in the book is that she commissioned this amazing work called the Encomium Mi Regini, which literally translates as in praise of Queen Emma. And what is so wonderful about this text is it is a piece of a brazen political propaganda that describes her life uh, in gilded terms and kind of brushes over the fact that she is the mother to four separate claimants to the English throne and brushes over the inherent factionalism that she saw all around her amongst her children and her stepchildren. I sort of like to think that she understood the way women's stories were often mangled and erased over time. And she set out to commission this work that would put down very much her version of events. Well, you have a, a another sort of section in the book, and I mean, it's interesting, as you know, just yeah. hearing about her, but hearing about other hidden authors, and particularly female hidden authors. I wonder if you can elaborate on that. And I think we have an area searching for the earliest English women writers, for example. Yeah, so I, w I wanted to, um, in the book, there are women in every chapter, apart from one, which is about the destruction of manuscripts, because I very much wanted to make clear that there is a kind of popular perception that manuscripts were all made by monks. And it's wrong on two levels. Firstly, a lot of manuscripts were made by lay figures, by secular figures. But also, importantly, a lot of women were involved in the production of manuscripts as scribes, as authors, as artists, and indeed as patrons, as I gave the example of Queen Emma. So I, I really wanted to make that clear, but I, I find the work of early authors particularly interesting, in part because I think a lot of our modern idea about what an author is, is very, very different from the medieval idea of what an author is. You know, today... And this, to some degree, comes back to our discussion about value. 
today we place an enormous value in the idea of the author. And that's really the inheritance of print culture, which is a very highly commercialized activity. Whereas, okay, to give a really massive generalization, pre-print culture, manuscripts were often produced perhaps by institutions, by monastic institutions, or produced for university students. Towards the end of the Middle Ages, we see more of a commercialization of manuscript production. But generally, that's not the basic motivation for a lot of manuscript production in the Middle Ages. But by the time we have the arrival of print and the technology of print, we have the commercialization of textual production. And with that comes a very different notion of authorship and the value of authorship, because a particular author confers a particular commercial value on a text. And the same thing isn't really true in the Middle Ages. And authors are not always very carefully attributed in the Middle Ages, and their names get erased. And this is especially true of female authors. And so I was really keen to go and look at a whole load of different texts, some of which we know were authored by women, and some of which we have to kind of do a bit of excavation and peel back some layers. Tell me about that excavation. Where do you start? Well, you could take, for example, there are some amazing poems in Old English. Old English, as I said, this language spoken before the Norman Conquest, roughly, so the early medieval period. And they are written clearly from the perspective of a female speaker. We know that because they have feminine grammatical endings. Old English is an inflected language. So... Yes, of course, it's very hard to know in that case. It's only very highly suggestive. But, you know, it's not beyond the bounds of reason to suggest that those texts could have been authored by women. And we have accounts of women from that period authoring texts elsewhere. So it's not totally mad. And then we have other really wonderful examples. Like in the book, I talk about a missionary nun in 8th century Germany. She was originally from England and she went to Germany to act as a missionary to try and convert people to Christianity. And she wrote these two saints' lives. And in the kind of space in between these two saints' lives, she wrote this little piece of code. And in the prologue to one of the saints' lives, she announces herself as a female author. She says, I am an indigna saxonica, you know, a lowly Saxon woman, but she never names herself. So we know from the text itself that this is written by a woman. And it was not until the 1930s that a scholar called Bernard Bischoff was able to decode this little section and work out that she had embedded her own name within it. Again, a lovely example. I like to think that perhaps she understood the way female authors' names tend to get erased and history does not treat them well. And so she just put this little bit of code and hoped that it would get copied and recopied in manuscript transmission. Amazing example. And I wonder, you know, as you look at the future, I mean, how can one make a study of manuscripts more accessible when you say that you're a medieval manuscript scholar? I can imagine some people might think that that is something of a conversation (laughs) cul-de-sac. I wonder how you can reach out to those people. Well, I think on a very simple level, what I love in history is human stories. I love to know what people in the past thought and felt and did. And I feel like manuscripts offer us this unparalleled opportunity to understand that about people in the past. And I think there's also something important, which is that manuscripts were often particularly made by people of a kind of lower social status or indeed women 
they were made by the kinds of people that we don't always sort of valorize in our traditional histories of the medieval period. So I think they are this very precious resource for allowing us to access human stories from the past. And I personally feel like that is just an endlessly fascinating subject. And I think it's one that people do respond to. It's much more interesting to know about the particular scribe who made a manuscript and you know, the fact that he was cold and he was complaining that his back ached and that his fingers were hurting than to know some quite kind of dry scholarly textual detail, much as I am interested in that stuff. I think generally people are more interested in the human dimension. And so what does the future hold for you, Dr. Mary Wellesley? Are you, are you working on your next book or are you trying to think of other ways of reaching out to people? Your job, I suppose, is a balancing act between your scholarly work and reaching out to other people to more broadly. And I wonder where you sort of see the equilibrium of your career line. Um, well, I'm working on another book. And yeah, I teach at the British Library on the adult learning program. So I'm teaching absolutely people who are not attached to higher education institutions who are just interested in the substance of the Middle Ages. And so I like to do that. And writing, I like to write, you know, as widely as possible. Yeah. And I, I hope that people go on being interested in the Middle Ages. It does seem to take a kind of brief glance at popular culture at the moment that there is a tremendous interest in the Middle Ages. And why that is, is a very interesting question. It is interesting. What would be your big sort of non-manuscript book recommendation? I really hope it's trashy. <laughs> um, well, if you're interested in history, I just read a book called River Kings by Kat Jarman, which is an amazing history of the Vikings. And it's the kind of history I really love. It opens with her looking at a tiny glass bead found in an archaeological excavation. And from there, she unpacks this kind of extraordinary story about Viking trade and Viking culture. And it's a real sort of reassessment of the Vikings. We have a sort of very particular idea about them that is fed to us through popular culture. And this, this really unpacks many of those assumptions. It's just incredibly readable and wonderful history. Sounds exactly up my alley. And then, then final question, what advice would you give to young and budding authors who are perhaps you know, looking to pursue a career in writing? I would say read, read good writing. There is just nothing else will give you such a good grounding in how to structure prose well at both the sentence level and at the kind of larger level and keep practicing, keep trying. Keep practicing, keep trying. I like it. Dr. Mary Wellesley, thank you for joining me. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Why Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett, Portfolio Manager at Waverton, and our guest this week, Dr. Mary Wellesley, the author of Medieval Manuscripts and Their Makers. If you've enjoyed this episode or indeed the series, why not like us, subscribe to us and let your friends and colleagues know. The information provided during this podcast does not constitute investment advice and should not be relied on as such. It should not be considered a solicitation to buy or an offer to sell a security.